In today's episode, we pick up where we left off last time with Mark chapter 14, verse 53, and we're going to be covering the end of the chapter. Now, this passage delves into the dramatic events surrounding Jesus' arrest and Peter's denial. It paints a vivid picture of the tumultuous night of Jesus' trial before the religious leaders. And as events unfold, the spotlight turns to Peter, and he denies that he knows Jesus three times, just as Jesus had foretold. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, November 27th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Now, if you haven't checked them out recently, I really do encourage you to go. Head over to lhfmissions.org and learn about their translating and publishing work right there on their website. They can do all kinds of things for you and your congregation. And of course, they serve saints around the world with all of the great works that they translate into very, very many different languages. Well, we are going to keep on going, though, because I know why you're here. You're here to hear the end of Mark. Here to hear the end of Mark. That's an interesting way to say it. But we're going to be finishing up Mark 14 today, just that chapter. But if you have any questions or comments about the show, as always, I encourage you to email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also uh, send me a message on Facebook. Well, my guest for this morning is the Reverend Dr. Richard Davenport. He's the pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he's returning to the program. Good morning, Pastor Davenport, and welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. Yeah, last time we had you back, we did one of our free text first Fridays. Today, we're sort of in the normal course of things. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, but before we do any of that, I just want to, you know, ask you how you're doing and give you a chance to share with the saints at home how things are going at your congregation down there in Arkansas. Well, things at Arkansas are are doing well. We are uh, constantly uh, looking for ways to kind of reach out into the community, and it's been uh, just a joy to to see that uh, the congregation has that desire and wants to find ways to just show God's love to people. Uh, I know that's that's something that we kind of have to have to remind ourselves is is part of the part of the mission and uh, so I've been pleased to see that that is alive and well here that's excellent you know I mean and that's of course all of our goal as we go out into the world but we meet with such resistance and we see so much disdain for God's will and works and ways boy it really becomes hard to remember that we need to love people as Christ loved them and of course, part of that love is pointing them to the way of the truth and the life and, well, and frankly, pointing them to the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into our text, would you start our time together off in prayer? Absolutely. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach the end of the church here, we are reminded of how much you have done for us. We come up to the end of the church here, but also the end of our time walking through the life of Christ this year. And we think back to all that you have done for us thus far, but we also are reminded that there is more to come. And you have promised the new heavens and the new earth that will uh, 
be here and be given to us when Christ returns. And we ask that you keep us mindful that that time is coming and it is coming soon, that we may always be ready and waiting to receive our Lord when he returns. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just for, well, all our benefits, but especially for those who might have missed the previous episode, take us a little bit through kind of what's been going on around Jesus that led up to this moment. We're going to be talking about Jesus standing before the high priest today, but of course he didn't just start there. A lot of important events have taken place. Give us just a little rundown of what's happened leading up to our events. Uh, So if we go back, Back a little bit to, say, uh, Mark 14, verse 32, this is kind of what starts off this whole sequence of events, we might say, and Jesus was there in Gethsemane, and he, he knew that the time had come. It, I mean, this has been the thing he's been looking forward to throughout his whole ministry, but it's it's one thing for that to be kind of out there in the distance, but now it's that time has finally arrived, and so he's he's um, kind of dealing with the reality that uh, all of the things that he's been working toward are are finally coming to their fulfillment, and that it's going to be a rough time, and um, not something I think any of us would be looking forward to, and in his humanity that he, he knows he's going to suffer and he knows that it's it's going to not just be physical but emotional spiritual suffering and that that's more than any of us can truly kind of comprehend uh and so after he has uh, been strengthened through prayer there in the garden he is arrested by judas judas finally fulfills also his kind of role in all of this finds a place where where Jesus is is alone away from the crowds where the uh, chief priests and all of those uh, their uh, their group can pick him up without arousing the wrath of the crowds and they haul him off and now we have arrived uh, before the high priest and to be kind of put through this farce of a trial and uh, they're going they're going to have their day. Well, and as we're going to see today, it certainly is a farce of a trial. You know, just even in advance because most of us have heard the heard the events of today's lesson, but the Jewish leaders are really trying to bring false witnesses against Jesus. And what we're going to see is that, well, frankly, there's conflicting testimonies and so they can't get a a, a straight false witness, so to speak. But I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that, so that's what we're going to cover today. I'm going to go ahead and start with verse 53 of Mark chapter 14, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. 
Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Or let's pause right there at the end of verse 59. Take us through this section. So they they lead Jesus to the high priest. Now they're not taking him to like some courthouse or anything like that. They're taking him to the guy's house. Isn't that kind of how it worked? Yeah, it's it's something that's, you know, uh, a little strange to you know certainly our our american ears you know what what's really going on here and the the reality that in in some sense there were there were kind of two justice systems operating here and that this was one of the um kind of concessions you might say that the roman empire had had given to them they the the jewish people to to some extent got to manage their own affairs because they were just they were unruly people and the romans got you know were were trying to run the 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 land and ultimately had the the authority to to enact their laws and their will but they allowed the jewish people to to manage most things on their own until they got to be a too big a deal, and so here we're we're seeing that kind of play out. The the Jews are kind of trying to manage their own their own affairs to a certain extent. Well, and so talk a little bit about who the high priest is, because there were a couple of guys sort of vying in a way for that title. We have uh, Caiaphas and Annas. What's the situation there? So it's a, another kind of strange situation uh going back you know we we think of the 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 priesthood as it was originally kind of created back in in the early days of the israelite people back in in leviticus you might you going the, the ordination of aaron and his sons and um there it you certainly get the impression that the the high priest position is is one that's pretty easy to, to kind of see well who's going to be the high priest and it just kind of follows down the line through Aaron and his sons but by this time it's become quite a bit more uh, it's it's not as straightforward as you might have thought and it becomes almost a a position that you can kind of claim for yourself and so the and there's there's certainly a lot of prestige, a lot of power that goes with that. So having the role of high priest is something. There's a, a, a number of people who are, uh, you know, trying to kind of claim for themselves, and and you have transition points from you know where where one person's tenure you might say leaves off and another picks up. So yeah, we I mean we have Annas being recognized as the high priest by many Jews and then Caiaphas is the high priest according to others and according to, you know, and we we see this in the scriptures. We see it in Matthew and John and other places. Here, you know, Mark doesn't really give us the name. I don't think he does anyway, at least not right away. I don't know that he does at all. But in any case, he just says that Jesus is brought to the high priest. It kind of reminds me a little bit growing up in North Carolina 
Uh, I live just down the road from the Cherokee Indian Reservation. And so once you're on the res, you can, you, you know, you have their own law enforcement, they're their own municipality, but they also have some, um, their own justice system that sort of operates in concert with certainly the state and federal government, but it's also its own thing. They're an independent sovereign nation. Is that kind of how it's going with the Jews? I mean, they're, they're allowed some sort of self-rule from the Romans, although at the end of the day, the Romans are going to still have the final say in things. Well, that's, that's actually a really good example. Um, it's just like you might say on, on the reservation, there is there is the the justice system that is in place. They have a number of their own laws, but their, their laws can only extend so far. There are certain things that they simply are not able to determine for themselves where the, the federal government then becomes the ultimate authority. And, and there's a very similar situation here, which is why they're kind of going through this whole process. I mean, we can see right from the outset here in, in the text, they already have their agenda. They've already determined what the result of this trial is going to be. They're just going through the motions so that they can then present their case to the the Roman governor, Pilate, and you know make their you know, legal, official-sounding argument for why their will should be carried out. And I mean, at the moment, Pilate's not a part of this picture. They have to they have to go through all the process and make sure they're they're following the proper procedure to to get Pilate to fall in line with this. So we see here that. At the high priest's house, and, and it probably was a fairly nice place. He has a courtyard, and in the courtyard, we have crammed in, at the very least, 71 men, because that's how many people are on the Sanhedrin. It says right there, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now, I've heard from some commentators that the Sanhedrin um, could not put anyone to death. That was one of the limits. That only could be decided by the Romans. But I've heard from other commentators, uh, both uh, sets uh, who are much more knowledgeable than I on the inner workings of the Sanhedrin, who said, yes, of course they could put people to death, but of course there were some caveats. Do you have any insight onto it? I mean, you know, they were meeting to condemn Jesus, but is that just so they could then bring their case to the Romans, or could they have actually carried it out had it not been Passover or something like that? Um, I mean, the, the way I've always kind of fallen on it is, and, and this comes kind of piecing things together through, through all of the Gospels, is they, they acknowledge that this is not something that ultimately they have control over because one of the, one of the, uh, charges they they level against him and ultimately the 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 charge they they bring before Pilate is that Jesus is claiming to be a king and that's not something the Sanhedrin would necessarily have a problem with because that's a that's a civil problem that's the in 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 the Roman terms that's a a threat to to Caesar to the emperor um and that's something Pilate, at least in their minds, should care about and want to deal with. 
But of course, some of that false testimony is something that they care very deeply about. Going back to verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Well, Jesus kind of said something like that, right, in John. Uh, why, don't we, why don't we talk about a little bit, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus mean, and did they misunderstand him, or were they, you know, you, do you think they misunderstood him, or do you think that maybe they were in t- intentionally twisting his words? Maybe a little of both. But let's begin with, what did he really say? So, I mean, just the, the, the words themselves, I mean, it, it certainly sounds like he's talking about the, the temple that, that Herod had, you know, was, was building up. That was one of his big claims to fame, and that got him a lot of goodwill with the people since he was technically an outsider. Um, and the the fact that the temple was was there was a big point of pride for the Jewish people. So Jesus coming along saying I'm going to destroy this temple, I that that's going to get your your hackles up. Uh no, you, this is this is the pride and joy of us as the Jewish people. You you don't you don't mess with that. Now what they would you know, if you just take Jesus at his words, I'm going to destroy the temple. Uh, you're just one guy. I mean, how would you even go about doing that? And they, they never really stopped the question, you know, d- does this even make sense? But clearly that's not really what Jesus is after anyway. So um, what they heard by that, um, yeah, I... I don't think they're really thinking through what his words mean, that there, there's got to be something else behind what Jesus is saying. But they never bothered to go there. No, I mean, I, I think it's more of a, that he made an insult to the temple. And then when they find themselves in front of the Sanhedrin, they say, well, we're going to take that insult and take it to its worst logical conclusion. Because we recall from John chapter 2, verses 9 through 22, and I'm going to go ahead and read those. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But John reveals to us this. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Well, so going back to what Jesus did say, destroy this temple, like if you were to destroy it, so even if they thought that he was talking about the physical temple, he didn't say, I'm going to destroy it. He's saying, if you do, I'll raise it up. But then, of course, the crux is he wasn't talking about that temple at all. So, I mean, then they're not taking seriously what the, the temple was all about. I mean, it was never really about the building to begin with. And the, one of the the amazing uh, the dialogues going back in, in Exodus where Moses is having this conversation with God um, about, you know, the, the people themselves and the relationship to God. I, I'm, I have to think of the, the chapter. I want to say it's verse 34. Um, but God tells the people to, to go on ahead that he's, he's 
you know, mad at them and he doesn't want to go with them. They, they, they're going to, they're going to take off and leave and, and God's going to kind of follow after. And Moses tells them, talks to God and says, but is it not in your going with us that we are known as your people? Isn't that really what this is all about? If we don't have you with us, then we're no different than anybody else. And that's what the, 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 the tabernacle and the, the temple ultimately were, were all about all the along. It was never the, the place. It was the presence of God that made the place special. Not just the presence of God, but the presence of God as he gives grace and mercy to his people. Because that was what the, all of the activity around the, the temple and the tabernacle was, was all about. All of the sacrifices, all of the festivals, all of the things that happened there were all ways in which God had mercy on his people. That God connected and related to his people was a part of their lives. Uh, he didn't need the temple. It was just where he promised he would be and where he was going to do this kind of work. So when Jesus comes along, what is he doing? That's the same stuff. It's God being with his people and not just being with them, but having mercy on them, healing them, tending to their needs, all the stuff God's been doing at the temple all along. So they should have not been looking at the place, but at the activity. Where is God? Where is God having mercy on his people? Well, before it was the temple, but now it's this Jesus guy. And so if he's talking about this temple, well, maybe that's what he's talking about. Not the place, the person. And of course we see that by looking backward in history, we can easily say, you know, well, okay, that makes sense. And we see all the connections there. And I think Jesus gets frustrated with the people that they don't see the connection even in his time. But what it brings to my mind is, and I don't want to, you know, make this too much of a, an analogy or anything like that, but, but, um, or an allegory, I should say, but, but what do we do what do we do today that sometimes mimics this behavior? How often do we put our pride and our, our hope and sometimes even our trust in the institutions or in the buildings rather than in the work of God in our midst. We very much do this, I think, today. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, certainly as a, as a pastor, but, but even as, as, you know, just a member of the congregation, you, you take a, a certain amount of a pride in in your church you like to see them active you you look around and you like to see the pews all full and all the voices raised in song when the hymns are playing and all of these kinds of things and you know having more people in church on sunday well that's that's great well you're right having more people there is is great but why why is that so important um usually when people are, are really pushed for it, it's, well, because I have pride in my church and I want to see it do well. Well, that's okay, but that's not really what it's all about. And a, a church, you know, a, a storefront church, a church plant or something that's got eight people there on a Sunday morning, and you compare that to you know, a, a, a big, a big church that's got, you know, two, three, four hundred or, or more on a Sunday morning. 
and you make that comparison, you say, wow, man, this, this isn't so good. We're not nearly as important. We're not nearly as uh, blessed or whatever kind of term you want to use. And you can get pretty depressed. But, you know, again, what is it that makes this place special? And it's always the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ giving his his, his grace to his people, giving forgiveness and mercy and life to his people. And if the, the word is preached and the sacraments are given in, in a tiny church, that makes that place just as important, just as special, just as blessed as any other church out there, no matter how big or small. I think that's very well said. You know, I, I, I'm at what I would consider a pretty medium-sized congregation. I've preached at small ones and, and bigger ones, you know, not any giant ones or anything like that. But one thing I have noticed, though, is a lot of people take pride in, say, the, the size of their either church building or the number of people in their congregation. But that correlates often to the size of the community in which you are in. So, you know, if you're in a city of 500,000 people, um, you you might have a thousand people, but then as a percentage of your population, you know who knows. But if you're out in the middle of a cornfield, you know getting eight families there is about the best you can do. And I think in a, not only is this a message for those who are say in larger churches with bigger resources to not somehow look down on the work of those smaller congregations, but I think what you're saying is a reminder to those smaller congregations that. Yeah, it's not about looking up at the giant gold-clad stones of Herod's temple and say, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings like the disciples did. It's really about looking at Christ. And if you know that Christ is in your midst, well, then there's no better place that you can be on earth. And that's where we're going to leave it for right now as we take a break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Davenport and I will keep on going through Mark chapter 14. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Richard Davenport. He's the pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church of Fort Smith, Arkansas. And we're talking about the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. In particular, Jesus standing uh, on trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. So let's get back to our text. Well, looking at our text, brother, we're making our way almost to the end of this first section. Um, we've been talking about just sort of, you know, how this might apply to us today. The Jews there, as they as they look and they put their hope and trust in the temple, which in many ways is not inappropriate. That is the place where God promised to meet his people. But where they went wrong is they did not notice God dwelling in their midst in Jesus, despite him fulfilling prophecy despite him 
Well, basically just, you know, ticking off all the boxes. Here's the Christ. Well, you know, and it's tough, though. When we look back from their point of view, they really were institutionalized in such a way that they had a very hard time receiving the Christ. And I think we should caution ourselves against becoming that way, too. Well, in our text, we also just got to the point where they couldn't even get their testimonies to agree. And so I'd like to go ahead and continue with the narrative, starting with verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments And he said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. All right, that's the end of verse 65. So after the witnesses kind of fall short, they don't do a good job. Essentially, the high priest... uh, asks him a very leading question, which is, by the way, not allowed in our criminal justice system today. Uh, You could object to that line of questioning on the basis that it's leading the witness. Uh, Jesus did do the right thing by, uh, he didn't have a Fifth Amendment right in Rome, but uh, he certainly sets a good example for us. Never talk, folks, never talk. But anyway, uh, he remains silent until, of course, he's given that opportunity to witness to whether or not he really is the Christ. And Jesus says, I am. And boy, that ticks off the high priest and basically seals his fate. Take us through this, though. Why is that such a bad thing? What has gone wrong for Jesus here, so to speak? Well, this is the the ultimate challenge to the the power of the priests. And, and this is uh, a theme that's kind of woven through all of the, the Gospels, especially for instance, the, the Gospel of Matthew, where, where authority is kind of one of the central issues. You know, who's who's the religious authority? Who gets to speak uh, the words of God? And the, the, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of these folks have all kind of contended that that authority lies with them. They're the righteous ones. They're the knowledgeable ones, the educated ones. They're the ones who have been granted this authority. And now Jesus comes along and is, is using some of the same terminology, but pointing out pretty clearly that their interpretation of things has been wrong and continues to be wrong has been wrong for a long time and if that is allowed to stand then people are going to start asking well if these priests are teaching us the wrong things then why why are they here why do we need them why do we listen to them so we got to get rid of this jesus guy because he's going to turn people against us now i've asked this of hmm a lot of the guests that have come on through Mark. Uh, do you think that, and again, I'm, I know I'm calling you to speculate, and of course, unless you have some evidence, but are, do you think that the the chief priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin folks, do you think they some of them actually knew that he was the Messiah, but because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted and was a threat to their power, they were going to destroy him anyway? 
or do you think for the most part they just honestly thought he was a a con artist and were taking care of him have you ever thought about that and do you have an opinion um yeah i mean we we certainly see at least a a, a few times you know for like for instance nicodemus who you know a pharisee so not not likely going to be one of the the ruling council or anything here but certainly there are individuals who who take Christ's message to heart and 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 want to know more and are 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 wrestling with well what does this all mean i mean in john chapter 3 you have Nicodemus, you know, he arrives by night. He's not, you know, making this a public thing yet. He's still still figuring this out. Um, here, though, there there's a clear direction here. They they know what they're trying to accomplish, and you you don't see anybody, uh, at, at least in in Mark's uh, exposition of the events, n- nobody is is going against the flow here. They're, they're all, they all seem to be of one unified purpose. They're trying to destroy Jesus. Now, if, uh, if you had individuals on the Sanhedrin who had faith, I think, I think, as you said, speculating, that you'd at least have some dissenting uh, viewpoints. You know, is this really what we want to do? Is this, is this how we should handle this? Maybe we should listen to them a little more and, and, and take some time to sort this out. But you don't get any of that. It's all, he's on trial. We're, you know, we're bringing witnesses we, we know are false. We know that they're, the stuff they're saying is, is garbage. Um, but we don't care because we have a goal and we're going to get there however we can. Well, and see, and I think my question even delves in a little deeper to whether or not there is some nefariousness going on. And what I mean is might some of them have the faith of demons. That is, they know that Jesus is the Messiah. They know it. They have faith in him in the sense that they believe him, which isn't saving faith. But instead of following him, knowing him to be the Christ, they try to destroy him. I realize that's completely untenable we can't defend that from the scriptures but i'm just i've always thought about that you know when they're when they're attacking jesus certainly some of them kind of like Pilate, you know he's not in the know he's just doing his job and then you have people like uh uh, the the sanhedrin well you know some of them are probably just doing their job protecting the people against these false messiahs which wasn't exactly a new thing but i was just wondering maybe there were a few who said this is the messiah but if that he's the messiah then that means all my power is gone. Everything I, everything is about him now. Everything is going to be focused on him. And just in that deep-seated sinfulness, they give into that and destroy Jesus. It's certainly a big contrast with you know, someone like John the Baptist, who, who knows exactly what his place in all of this is and knows, you know, as he himself says, he must increase, I must decrease. That, that's, that's how it has to be. And to do it any other way is, is to destroy, you know, the, the grace that God is trying to give his people. And you, you may be right that, you know, they, they're so concerned with holding on to this power or that they know exactly who this is and, and they want to get rid of him. I mean, either way, um, that's, that's the goal. We're, we're going to get rid of this voice. It, it, we can't allow it to speak anymore. 
Yeah, it absolutely doesn't change the series of events. And, and so Jesus doesn't say a lot at the beginning, but then when the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? A little bit uh, interesting um, care. I don't know, it's just a weird phrase, son of the blessed. Uh, I guess like the creator who's blessed forever, blessed forever. But basically he's saying, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Uh, as we've heard that you've been saying, and Jesus admits it. He says, I am. Now, I'm one of these people who doesn't believe that every time Jesus uses the construction, I am, he's trying to make some sort of grand connection to the great I am of the Old Testament. I know people disagree. I don't know where you stand, but this particular I am, um, it's written in Greek, but assuming he's speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew, do, do you believe that this is a, a, a recalling the, uh, the I am of the Old Testament? I don't think we see it functioning in the same way. Um, I mean, when he uses that statement in the garden, when the 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 mm-hmm. you know guards and such come in, we're we're told right there that 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 statement has an impact. It has power. God is is at work through that declaration, um, and we don't see that going on here. So I I, I would agree with you that. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be doing the same kinds of things. This this seems like more of just a straightforward, you know, admission, uh, answering the question. So the high priest gets mad. He tears his garments, accuses him of blasphemy. He doesn't accuse him of blasphemy. He sa- he points to his words and declares blasphemy. Uh, what did Jesus say that was blasphemous? Well, I mean, as we know, nothing. But from his perspective, oh yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> um, Jesus is is claiming to be e- equivalent to, you know, as we would say, God the Father, and no one gets to do that. N- there's there's God, and then there's everything else. He is an, entirely in his own category. So to equate yourself with God in any way, shape, or form. Um, is to is to denigrate God, and you you're not allowed to do that. And that's and that's if Jesus a, were not Jesus, then this would be blasphemous. Then absolutely right. And so that's that's you know looking at it from the outside. I mean, it's kind of the amusing thing. Uh, Jesus says is is absolutely right. He is equivalent to God. It's just they and he's been acting that way he's been operating that way all along and they've they've refused it from the get-go well then the soldiers begin to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him telling him to prophesy you know we get a lot of that mocking language here he doesn't go into it as deeply as some of the other synoptics but we definitely get the spirit that the guards and in this case these are guards that um I, I'm assuming are are Sanhedrin guards or temple guards, not not. I don't think they've involved the Romans just yet. Right. I I that's that's certainly the way it's presented here. That that the Romans don't get involved until the next chapter. Well, let's move on to our next section anyway, and that's going to be starting with verse sixty-six, and I'm just going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, which is verse seventy-two. And as Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, 
You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. You are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. All right, that's the end of our text for today. So, uh, yeah, so Peter, he's in the courtyard. So he's down there in the courtyard, and I guess he's waiting to see what happens. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what is Peter's motivation for being here? I mean, he just recently told Jesus that you'll never die, and Jesus rebukes him. And now he's just sort of following around like a lost puppy, denying that he even knows him. This is a, such a dramatic shift for Peter. Yeah, it's 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 a dramatic shift, and at the same time, this this is is very much in character for Peter. I mean, he's he's always hmm. been the 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 one who's kind of first in line behind Jesus, and so he's he's going to travel kind of wherever he goes and. It, in in that sense, he's he's living out his life as a disciple. That's that's the job. You, wherever Jesus goes, that's where you go. Um, so we see him doing that. It's unfortunately maybe for for in for Peter's perspective, he doesn't get the um, treatment that John does. John gets to go and and see things a little more closely. Uh, Peter's stuck on the outside, so he's waiting for news, waiting to catch a glimpse, see what's going on to the best of his ability. Why not say, yes, I know Jesus. I'm just waiting to see what's happening. But he doesn't. He denies him. Of course, Jesus predicts that. But certainly there's fear in in Peter's heart in this whole situation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, a, a, a helpful thing to hear that, I mean, we know deep down, Peter is 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 trusts Jesus. He he has kind of all along, but even in that trust, I mean, that our 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 daily walk of faith. There there are good days and there are bad days. There's days where we're confident and we're we're trusting in God, you know, through thick and thin. And then there's those days we, we have our doubts and we're, we're really just not sure we're going to make it. And, and Peter's at one of these low points and he's really, uh, not, uh, not thinking things through very well. No, he's certainly not. I mean, Jesus is on trial. As you said, as a disciple, he's following Jesus. Um, and they come up to him, and this detail isn't found in Mark, it's found in Matthew, but I, I'm always a little bit amused by the fact that they are able to discern that he's a Galilean because of his accent. You know, the little things like we don't, we don't really think about, a little bit of a shibboleth there, so to speak. They, they hear him talking and they say, you must be one of them or you are one of them because your accent gives you away. That's how Matthew puts it. Uh, so... Jesus is kind of known from being from a certain area. I guess that's one thing. But then Jesus 
comes and he's he's on trial. Peter denies him. But in addition to Peter just being recognized as one of his disciples, Peter triples down on it and and he he does it with an oath with a with a basically may God you know send me to hell if I if I if I actually know Jesus that's how much I don't know him that's not really a minor point I mean the fact that he actually sealed it with an oath I think is very significant wouldn't you say I agree and at the same time you can hear the, the the fear going behind this, and that, that that doesn't excuse it by any any means. But you can you can certainly you can certainly put yourself in this same situation. I mean, the guy that you've followed around for for three years, the guy that you in your own mind were pretty well convinced was in you know invincible. Nothing was going to 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 take Jesus down. And that seems to be exactly what's happening. I mean, Peter's whole worldview seems to be kind of shaking here. And, you know, it doesn't sound like he's really giving a lot of thought to what he's saying, that this is this is almost just a, a, a reflex. Uh, I don't want to get caught either. I mean, they're, they're coming after everybody. They, they could kill me too. I, I better uh, distance myself as much as I can from this, from Jesus, because I don't want to get rounded up either. Um, so how much we make of his words, I mean, he, he's guilty of what he says. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. But at the same time, I think we have to be careful that that doesn't mean necessarily that he's somehow lost his faith. Oh, I would agree with not having lost his faith. Um, you know, so if I hear what you're saying correctly, then, the, you know, we have and we deal with this when we especially teach teenage compromands, but adults are just as bad. We talk about using or not using the Lord's name carelessly. And of course, people, OMG, and oh my God, as an expletive and all that kind of stuff all the time. It has become such a part of the language that so many people use it, even faithful Christians, without without a second thought. And they're not doing it to use the Lord's name carelessly. It's just part of the language and something that is maybe a hard habit to break. Let's put it that way. So it could very well be that when he invokes this curse on himself, it's more of an ironic thing. He's he's so used to just saying, uh, you know, oh, I, I swear by my head or I swear by, you know, the Father in heaven that this is true. It, it's become such just sort of part of his language that it slips out here in this moment. But whether intentional or just sort of a slip, it, it, I think it's really poignant in the fact that what he's saying will condemn himself. I mean, to deny Christ is condemning. Now, I'm not saying he's condemned, of course, because we see his repentance right away. He breaks down and weeps. But at the same time, we see the clear connection here that whether he knows it or not, maybe it's ironic, to deny Christ is to invoke a curse on yourself. But then again, as I said, he does break down and weep. So his repentance is there, although he hasn't gotten any direction yet on where to go next, and that's frightening. Yeah, and this this passage... I think it's really, really one that's is, is worth considering for what's going on here, um, especially when you take into uh, account kind of how Jesus 
interacts with him after the resurrection, which we, we get in John chapter 21, when, when Jesus is asking him, you know, Simon said of John, do you, do you love me more than these? Um, and, and clearly by, by that point, Peter's kind of figured out, right, that this was a, a, it was a bad thing. And he, he really does love his Lord. And Jesus is not, not arguing that case at all. Um, it, it clearly this, this, you know, this denial is, has been put away and, and Peter is, is forgiven. And, you know, in that sense, all is well again. But as we read this text, um, this deals with a, a, a problem that, you know, crops up, you know, all the time in, in our Christian lives. And I've certainly heard it as, as a, as a pastor and you, you hear it, especially in other, other church bodies, this idea that, um, that some sins are worse than others. And, you know, you look at, for instance, the, the, the Catholic church, right? You've got different categories of sins. You have mortal sins and venial sins and, you know, those sins that, that condemn you and those sins that are, well, they're bad, but you can, you can kind of work them off and, and that's okay. And even under those categories, there, there's all these, uh, delineations. You know, if you do this sin, then you have to do this kind of penance. If you do this other sin, then you do this bigger penance and so on and so forth. And, here you see a sin, I mean, and that's very clearly what it is. Peter's denying Jesus. Um, but it's a sin that we knew about beforehand. Peter was just explicitly told, this is going to happen. And, you know, Peter didn't, didn't really buy into it. But he'd been told that this was going to happen. And I think... You know, uh, uh, saying uh, again in my ministry, how many people have have asked me, Pastor, you know, I I did this thing, and I I went into it knowing I shouldn't have shouldn't do it. I I knew it was bad, and I did it anyway. Does that make it a sin that can't be forgiven? Oh right. And, and here we see that, that, that kind of thing playing out. And we know it certainly in, in our, in our earthly lives that certain sins have different consequences. I mean, stealing a pack of gum definitely has different consequences than committing murder, you might say, but in the spiritual consequences, sin is sin. All are, right. all sins are worthy of death. And at the same time, all sins, all sins are covered by Christ's forgiveness. The fact that you knew about it ahead of time doesn't change what God says about that sin. And that's a really helpful uh, thing to keep in mind here. And you bring up an interesting point too, or at least in my mind, and that is that when Jesus tells uh Peter or foretells that this will happen, we might ask the question, why? Why is Jesus telling him this? Is it so that when the time comes, he won't? Or did Jesus just say, really, no matter what, this is going to happen? And I think 
that ends up posing some more difficult questions than it might first appear because then we start talking about fatalism. We talk, you know, are things predestined? Are we, you know, even our sins, are we already destined to do our sins? So, so, you know, I guess I would ask the question, why did Jesus tell him in the first place? And if he had not, if he had sort of repented and not done this, then Jesus's prophecy would not have come true. Mm. So I think it kind of complicates it, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, God is always teaching. And I think anytime you see God talking or acting, doing anything, there, there should be at least part of your, you know, mind thinking through, all right, what is God trying to teach his people in doing this or saying this? And I mean, back when, when Jesus was foretelling Peter's denial, it was right in the midst of Peter's brash confidence that, you know, he would never do such a thing. And so Jesus comes along and says, no, actually you you will. Your confidence isn't all you think it is. And so to, to point out that not only is this going to happen, but that Jesus knows it's going to happen. And, you know, the Jesus doesn't, doesn't tell Peter kind of the aftermath of that, you know, all right, you're going to do this, you know, but then what? But Jesus knows what he's going to do about that. And that's kind of all that, that matters in that regard. We, Jesus knows how he's going to address Peter once he's, Peter has come to terms with the fact that he did exactly the thing he said he wasn't going to do. Right. Well, um, let's look at the rest of this. We're coming close to the end of our time together. You know, anything else that perhaps we didn't explicitly discuss that you want to make sure the people know about? Um, you know, again, this is this is all going according to plan. And one of the one of the comments that I was reading through is is the Jesus there before the the high priest, and you know they can't assemble a, a good, you know, legal argument against him. So the only way that this whole thing moves forward is if Jesus gives it to them. That That's how in charge Jesus is, mm-hmm. even though he's before the high priest, even though in, in earthly terms, Jesus has no power at all. God's still in charge. Very important, I think, and an interesting part for that. I'm glad that you didn't leave out. I tell you what, we're going to go ahead and end our program, though, because the time is up, which is a shame, because I think we could have continued talking about some of it for a while. But I'd like to thank my guest this morning. It's been the Reverend Dr. Richard Davenport. He's the pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Thank you, brother, so much for being on the show. Folks, when we come back tomorrow, we keep on going. We're getting very close to the end. We're going to start chapter 15. Jesus is going to stand trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. And despite Pilate finding no fault in Jesus, the crowd demands his crucifixion. This passage vividly describes the excruciating journey to Golgotha, the mocking by the soldiers, and the crucifixion itself. It captures the agony of Jesus, the reactions of those around them, and the profound significance of his sacrificial death. That and a lot more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.